0: Good morning. Welcome to December. This is actually December first. You know that. December. Um. We have the blind man sees, and then we have another title that I put it also last night. <laughs> it was late last night, and uh, it came to me. We have a truck about out there, about two men a truck. Yeah. How about two blind guys and a deliverer? <laughs> hey, so there long we long. go, we'll call it that. <laughs> the blind guy is going to see. In fact, both of them are, but we're featuring one today. What a miracle. Jesus intrigued the people back at uh, the time that He did His ministry. Galilee, Judea, is incredible. Throngs of thousands and thousands and thousands of people followed him because they know that this is not a natural man. There's a supernatural that invaded the uh, realm. I think the senses become heightened. Whenever there's something that we know that is infinitely beyond what man can ever even imagine to do. It's outside mankind. That's called supernatural. We are natural. Although we've been made in the image of Christ, if we've trusted in Him. And so therefore, we have become supernatural in the sense that the Holy Spirit lives in us. But still lives in these fleshly bodies And uh, we don't do supernatural things, do we? Uh, If you lived at that time, you expected that that is the Messiah, you would at least expect some miracles. That's what He's been doing all through His ministry. And so now, we have come to the last miracle. It's recorded in Luke. Last one. On this last journey... It's been the last few months of his journey. He's had, uh, I think, three other ones. This is the fourth one. Now, all throughout Luke, we've been seeing uh, a God through Christ that puts His power on display, banishes disease, blindness, even brings people back to life. That is supernatural. Clearly, He has to be the Messiah. How could anybody miss it from the signs that He's given them? And they have been numerous. Matter of fact, John talked about it and he said it would be almost too much to comprehend for us all that he did. He wrote that there are so many things, other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, he supposed that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. It's the works of Jesus. So we come to this last miracle involving a person, actually, because the resurrection. And of course, there are other things that happen, but this is recorded as the last one here. And we see that Jesus is going to be crucified. He's going to resurrect the third day. He's told them about that. And this is just before His time that He will go up to Jerusalem as He's already stated in the previous verses of our text today that we did last week. Uh, How do people ultimately respond to this miracle, to Jesus? How do we respond to Jesus and this miracle and what He's done in our lives as He has given us sight as we were blind spiritually? Uh, this story and then the next story that's found in 19, chapter 19 where you have Zacchaeus. This is Bartimaeus today, Zacchaeus next week, and that's how the people should have responded in the way that Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus respond. The nation didn't as a whole. They rejected him. And they do it in a way that the publican didn't. Remember the publican? You know, of course, you have... or, Or that the tax collector, I'm sorry. You had a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee did not do what this blind man, Bartimaeus, does. Now, there was a man along with that Pharisee in the temple, and he did do it the way that would be proper, as Bartimaeus did, crying out for mercy. Be merciful to me. And you'll remember the rich young ruler did not respond in the way that he should have. They trusted in themselves. The Pharisee, the rich young ruler, And really they didn't trust in the person of Christ himself and follow him. They they refused to acknowledge their sin. So Bartimaeus, Zacchaeus, they are not the candidates for being in the kingdom of God. Being a tax collector, one of the worst. The blind were considered to be sinners. These two guys didn't fit the mold of going into the kingdom. Who goes... The ones that didn't fit the mold. Who should have gone according to the people in Israel? Should have been the Pharisee and the rich young ruler. And so with all that context, from behind us we can see how this fits in today. And you concentrate now not just on the blind man, but really who do we concentrate on? Christ. Look at His power. Look at His compassion. Look at His forgiveness and being able to save. And that's what we'll look at today as we see the need of mankind that needs to cry out to God for mercy. Let's turn to that passage in uh, Luke 18, verse 35. Let's stand. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road, begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he called out, saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him. He says, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately, He regained his sight, he began following him, glorifying God, and when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. Let's pray. Father, what a story you have here. This is truth. This is about sight, and it's more than physical sight. It's the sight that sees you that knows You, this sight sees Your Word and responds to it by the power of Your Spirit. You open up our blind eyes. Help us to be open today, Lord, to further truth that You give us. And may it speak to each one of us. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. This mighty, powerful Christ He is, isn't He? He's focused on again today. Well, it says Jesus was approaching Jericho. Blind man sitting there. He's begging. Okay, now, remember in our last text, he already foretold that he was going to Jerusalem. He's going to be scourged, crucified, rise on the third day. He's already told him that several times now. Here it is again, he's saying it, and they are now on the way to Jerusalem. They have been for several months. They went uh, from Galilee into Judea to this area, or actually not exactly this area, but pretty close to there where Lazarus was raised from the dead after three days. Just remember, people don't forget resurrection of other people, do they? So that's a key point. He's now at the tail end of this journey. About 18 miles away from Jerusalem now. They're closing in. This is the destiny. This is what we've been talking about all the way through here. It's all about ultimately Christ at the cross. Takes away sins. He's been taking away blindness. He's been taking away diseases, deafness, demon possession, preaching the gospel. And here it is the last one before he goes on in. Now, John has recorded that raising of Lazarus in Bethany. That's why that already happened. He went back up to Galilee. That crossed over the Jordan River. This is like weeks later after uh, the raising of Lazarus. Goes down Perea over on the other side of the Dead Sea. Coming south. And then he crosses over the Jordan. There's Jericho. That's where we're at in this journey a little bit about Jericho. You all remember Jericho out of the Old Testament, don't you? We all know that Bible story about the children of Israel going into the Promised Land. They come up to the city called Jericho. God says, you're not going to battle them. Let me do the work. He says, all I want you to do is march around the city. Do that for six days, march around the city once. On the seventh day, march around it seven times. And then what happens? <clears throat> the walls come tumbling down, right? And so we know that story. Tremendous story. They uh, did what God said, and He did the work. They defeated Jericho, and they were on their way on into that land. Now, you go up to Jerusalem. You know, I always say you go up to Jerusalem. Even if you're north, up in Galilee, you go up to Jerusalem. Why would that be? Well, you ascend because it's up on a high area. Seated high. And so, there he is now. He's actually on the south part of what you would say Israel. It's close to the Dead Sea area. And you have this path that's long and winding. It's craggy. Slopes are really hard and difficult to maneuver as you just walk from Jericho to Jerusalem. Eighteen tough miles. Now, in the city of Jericho, great place to go vacation. You've got all sorts of springs around there. It was fed by springs. They had all sorts of reservoirs. They would pipe those into reservoirs and on into the city, irrigate all the crops. They had a lot of different kinds of crops there. Fruit trees were everywhere. Beautiful place. It's called the city of palms. When you see palm trees, what do you think? Beach, you know, Florida, California, tropical, you know, beautiful. And that's what Jericho really was. And it was so close to the Dead Sea, about six miles away. It also was known for a plant called balsam. And the juice out of that balsam was used for medicinal purposes. Jericho was quite the city it was. Matter of fact, it could be snowing Fifteen miles away in Jerusalem. And in Jericho, (coughs) did they wear shorts back then? Uh T-shirts? No. Uh, They probably used some... uh, Actually, it was said by Josephus that they were... If you lived in Jericho, and it would be wintertime in Jerusalem, you only need linen clothes. That, That means it is just to keep yourself cool. It's always warm there pretty hot in the summertime that's why there would be a palace that Herod would have in Jericho he would go there for his winter palacing his vacation and uh, of course it was known for almonds they flourished there and something else flourished there roses you're out in the desert folks and here is this oasis. I like to think of Jericho as, you know, we, do we have oases in our life? Sometimes we go through some real struggles, and then a, isn't it nice sometimes we come when there's peace and rest and everything goes just as planned? Just the way we like it. Jericho. This is right in the middle of a desert. Pretty well usually a hot, horrible place to be. But it was magnificent. Mark Antony, just a secular history would recognize this. Mark Antony, uh, you remember him, gave the city of Jericho to Cleopatra. No kidding. That's quite a gift, isn't it? (laughs) To give a city like this. So it's, it's its own little Hawaii, I guess, in a way. And here it is, a flourishing city, large population. And it had been conquered. And you say, wait a minute, it had been conquered by the Jews, right? The walls fell down. They had destroyed this as a matter of fact. it was ruins there. And that's what happened. During the time of Christ, they could probably see the, the ruins clearer than we could see today. They're making all sorts of digs around there today, and they have found, like, parts of the wall there. They dug and dug and dug way deep. Archaeology is incredible. It just proves that the Bible is true. The Bible doesn't need any proof outwardly, does it? But it it gives significance in the fact that, hey, these stories, there was an ancient Jericho city had walls. It was you know, it was buried and such all those years. And But at the same time, there was enough there to see the ruins, but there was a new Jericho pretty close by. And you have to remember that because you have the Old Testament Jericho. It's east and north. Pretty close by is, as you head a little bit south from there and west is Jericho. They're related to each other, very close. Uh, there were two Jerichos. And that's kind of interesting. Because when you run into our text today and compare it to like Matthew and Mark, you might have somebody ask, well, see, the Bible has errors. Because it says here in verse 35, we've started here, right? As Jesus was approaching Jericho in Matthew and in Mark... It says that he was leaving Jericho. Do not fear. It's okay. We have no problem. It's problematic in a sense if somebody doesn't know how to read the Bible, they can take that and make it say what they want. It's not saying what we're thinking, you know, humanly. Oh, wait a minute. He's approaching Jericho. No, he's leaving Jericho. Make up your mind, God. Your your writers are not getting it clear. So that shows you you can have errors. No, no, no. There are no errors in the Bible. There's no error here. And you can say, well, why is that? Well, he could be approaching the New Jericho as he leaves the Old Jericho. You would go through that area of Old Jericho to get to New Jericho. You'd pass right in it, by it. It's there. That would be no problem at all if it be that. But, even at that, if that's not the case, in the literal, it means to come near. Or in the vicinity, when it says approaching. He came near to Jericho. He was leaving, or He had come near. It was in the vicinity. There's another part to it also. (laughs) That could be. Others say he was going out, but when he heard the cry of the two blind men, he turned back around and went into the city. And he approached the city. All of those could be true. One of them probably more likely than the other. But do you see what's happening there? People see that and they look for theirs and see there's an error. <laughs> I have no. Pro- do you guys have a problem? No problem at all. Especially when you go even into the literal Greek. You know, at at best, I guess, or at worst, you know, it's like saying, okay, you know, he was near this city. (laughs) No problem. So, uh, there's one other thing to note about Jericho. That's really what we're kind of talking about here quite a bit. We'll move on here in a moment, but Real close to Jericho is this great big mountain, and real rocky it's massive it's a massive rock, and when the sun sets from the west, it casts its shadow all across Jericho. It's like it turns to night there almost the in that rocky mountain cliff area, you have severe cliffs, severe. Drop offs, uh, you could call it, uh, I guess you could say, rugged, barren land. And you say, what's so significant about that? It's a desert, right? Well, Jesus will remember that area because a lot of scholars, using archaeology and such, would say that's probably the area where Jesus got tempted by the devil. You remember the three temptations? And Jesus beat him there, yes. Well, it was probably that area as he would look up. Jericho, looking up at the mountain. What did he just cross to get there? There's another thought. The Jericho River. The Jericho River. Yeah, brings life from the north all the way down on the east side of Israel and empties Where? Into the Dead Sea. There's a spiritual implication, I do believe, here. Because you have life. You have water coming way up north, Mount Hermon, coming on through. And of course, you think of the Galilee area, Sea of Galilee, and there's that Jericho River coming down through there. Now, who baptized there? John the Baptist. It goes, and by the way, it goes into the Dead Sea. You have living water into something where there are no living animal, fish, or anybody could live in that water. It's a dead sea. But it's interesting. You know, all the minerals are there also. Do you know that people go there and take mineral baths? They're healing baths that <laughs> you can't sink in it. You can't go just you know go in the water like that. it will keep you up. It'll keep you afloat because of the heaviness and the metals and salt that's in that Dead Sea. That's the area that we're talking about. Jesus walks or uh, goes across the, the Jericho River so they would have, as he's been on that side, because he avoided Samaria. If people would go on the pre on the other side, they would come all the way down there and avoid a straight shot from Samaria. Why did he do that? Is he scared of the Samaritans? No, he's gone through there before. Just one thought: that's where the people are all coming down. Also, if they lived in Galilee and up north of Samaria, they would come down. Why would they come down that way? Because of that, it's maybe a little longer route. But it's Passover time. Now keep that in mind. This Passover. Yeah. You remember when Jesus was crucified? It's Passover. Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover. Feast of First Fruits. All is going to happen that one week. That's one time when everybody goes to Jerusalem. That's significant. Because in a few short days, if it's that long, He's going to be at the Mount of Olives. People are going to say what? Hosanna! Right? That is called what we know as what? Palm Sunday. That's how close we are. We're close to Palm Sunday, folks. It's how close. Jericho is to Jerusalem. So Jesus has all these memories, being baptized, His ministry, starting in that river. There it is, His temptation that happened on that mountain and all in that area out there in the wilderness. There He is, and now He has come back to Jericho area. And there is a blind man begging. Blindness is very common back at that time. We've already ran into it several times where he healed the blind. He healed so many, it's countless. Poverty has a lot to do with the blindness that they had, it was unsanitary conditions for a lot of people. Usually the poor people are the ones who were blind. It was blowing sand out in the wilderness area, desert area. The accidents, of course. There were a lot of crimes back then. It was dark. Maybe fights. Infectious organisms. So, this is kind of a common thing to see people who are blind. How did the rest of Israel look at it? Those were very sinful people. It's because of this they were born blind or got blindness. That's the way the people looked at it. It's a terrible ailment. They were wrong in their theology, weren't they? In John 9, we are told about that. A blind man had no hope. He might as well be a leper. No hope. No surgery no books or tapes to at least listen to. All they could do is basically one thing. Beg. No jobs available for the blind. The only thing they could do is beg. That's what he's doing now. we have another problem, problem, problematic situation. You take the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke and you compare them all. Occasionally, one witness will have a little bit different telling than another witness is. It's basically the same story, but one sees it in light of what he saw in the area that he saw and the direction and such. Another person, just just like witnesses today, they tell what they see. And if you're from another angle, you see this. Well, in this case, we, we solved the two Jericho thing, right? Go to um, Matthew 20, verse 30. Matthew 20, verse 30. And two blind men... But verse 29 says, Jericho, this is the same incident, folks, right here. Two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Matthew, you should have maybe colluded. Maybe Luke should have got his story right or something. I don't know. There it is. We got one blind man. Now we have two blind men. Does that make them... One wrong and one right? No, they're both right. So, well, how can that be? If you don't talk about somebody else in a story you're featuring on somebody, does it make it wrong if you don't tell about the other person? How about if you saw a car crash into another car and there were clearly a, a whole car load in there, but you as a witness are focusing on that driver what he was doing, they were all doing the same thing, you know they were laughing and shouting and yelling and stuff in there, and you know but it's still the driver want, but another person says, "Wow, there was a whole carload of them in there, and they were partying in there, you know it are they both wrong or one of them wrong? No, it depends on who you're focusing on now here's another one that will help us on this. Luke only says there's only one... Does he say there's only one man? Does he say that? No. He only is talking about this one this one guy here. He says uh, um, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. This is the story that Luke has heard as he searches truth to write this gospel. And no matter what they told him, whether it be two or whether it be one, They might have even told him to. He's focusing on this one. There might be a reason why. If you turn to Mark, uh, Mark 10, starting at verse 46. they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho, with his disciples and a large crowd get that, a large crowd. They're following Him because He is who He is. And also a lot of people have picked up on it because they're all going to where? To the Passover. And so a lot of people are saying, hey, join that crowd. Isn't it a lot more fun to travel with people than travel alone? You know, right? So there's a blind beggar, look at this, named Bartimaeus. Ah, This is why we have four Gospels, folks. Each one is legitimate. They didn't get together and say, okay, we've got to make sure every word is exactly the same. If you do that, what do you have? You have collusion. None of them colluded. They're telling it how they saw it, which was true and right. Mark picked up on the name Bartimaeus. Now, bar means son. You've heard of bar mitzvah? Okay, Bar is son Timaeus or Timothy, the son of Timaeus, the son of Tim. Not the Timothy that we probably think of in the New Testament later on, but we're talking about this guy's name is Timaeus. He's he's a son of him. It tells where they're from or what family they're from. I think it's significant that Mark would say this. Why? Because I think Bartimaeus became quite famous. Around that area, you know, we know in this story he starts following Jesus, doesn't he? I think he probably goes all the way to Jerusalem. You know, the Palm Sunday and everything. He joins that, he's probably there the whole week. After the resurrection, he's probably still hanging around. I don't know. But it makes sense he's following Christ. And he knows about these disciples. I think that he is so well known in the church when Luke, or when Mark writes this, he includes the name. Luke doesn't, but Mark does. Anything wrong with that? No. We get more, we get clearer insight. Each one complements the other. So, if I were to ask Audrey, in a court of law, if you heard two witnesses saying verbatim, word for word, the exact same thing and say, well, that must be really the truth. But could it be that they somebody got coached? Or they coached each other? Because they're saying the same thing to make sure that their story lines up. Most often, though, uh, it seems like criminals uh, don't ever get the story right because they have a little lie and then they forget the lie. And now they mess up their own story. Or the other guy doesn't support that for some reason, and, and now you've got a problem, right? But here, all of these stories are correct. That's why you can see the legitimacy of the witness of the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so I think that should help us whenever somebody says, Zeke, there's, there's... Two Jerichos, one Jericho. What's going on? Approaching, leaving. Uh, Two blind men, one blind man. Does it make sense now? Does that help? Because they use those all the time on you. They will try to do that. They won't read the rest of the story or try to see that, hey, these are witnesses giving truth. So... How does this fit in with us as it says there in that uh, he's blind, he's begging. Go to Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it means unbelievers cannot understand it, cannot see it, Because they're blind. And he'll explain that in a moment. To those who are perishing, here we go, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Why? So that they might not see the light of the Gospel, of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. They're blinded by Satan so they cannot see who Christ is. They don't want Him. He's veiled to them. We're veiled to them. Unless God opens up their eyes. This is what we once were. We were taken out of darkness and put into the kingdom of light. So we said there's a massive crowd. Go back to our Luke. It says in verse 36, Matthew says it is huge, massive crowd, a great multitude. They're all headed for the Passover as we said. Quite a lot of noise coming down through Jericho, isn't there? you know some of them are you know maybe Jesus is talking maybe a lot of people are uh listening maybe people are uh laughing just joking just having a good time as they walk through there and Jesus is like in the middle of all this or at the head of it all whatever it is people following and some people are probably asking is this the messiah as they start following him It's quite a stir here. So, the blind man or man, now hearing a crowd going by, can't see, but he can sure hear. You've heard about blind people, their senses become heightened, like hearing, touch, or whatever it is, it seems like those senses become alive even more and they can hear good. Here's he probably a crowd from way off in the distance. And now, he hears it going by. And there are people now finally there and he inquires what's all the commotion? What is this? You'd want to know, wouldn't you? They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, take note of that. What sticks out there? Jesus of Nazareth. To most people, that's really what he was. A man from Nazareth. Did some pretty special things, but he's just from Nazareth. What good is in Nazareth? Mm -hmm. Bartimaeus son of uh, uh, son right of Timaeus It's not only him but the other blind man They hear this ask what it is It's Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth and here we see spiritual insight by this blind man Bartimaeus instantly knew (coughs) that the window of opportunity had just opened up. And he better take it now. Because if he doesn't, Jesus will never pass by again. Today is the day of salvation. Don't ever listen to somebody say, well, you know what? I think I'll check this out and... Maybe examine a little bit more. Maybe next year I can get this. This Christianity thing. You don't have any time. Because the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Well, the window open. He took advantage of it. He knew about Jesus. He had heard about Jesus. He knew about the blind people that had been healed. He knew about the deaf people, the lame people, the demon-possessed people. He knew about that. Word gets around all over Israel. He'd been healing all over Israel. So, there's a whole lot more in Jesus than most of the people that have been following Him there at that time. That this man or these men knew. Bartimaeus' buddy, they must have talked about him quite frequently. Wouldn't it be great if Jesus, the son of David, would show up here? Now you notice I said son of David, and that's where we kind of have to go to now, don't we? This is important that he takes that name Jesus of Nazareth and takes it into Jesus, the son of David. This is spiritual insight. He knew that the Messiah would be somebody like who Jesus is. And you know what? He's got it together. He's never seen Jesus. doesn't even see Him now. But he sees Him clearly. He knows who He is. He does not say, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. He says, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Nobody says that. Unless they're saying that Jesus is the Messiah. How many people have missed the boat? Who do they say that I am? You're a great prophet. You're Isaiah. You're Jeremiah. One of the great prophets. You are somebody special. But this is the son of David. They recognize it. A messianic title. He's Messiah. He is the Redeemer. He is the King. Now, that's his title. He's heir to the messianic throne. He is heir, and he is the one that will fulfill the covenant, the Davidic covenant, King David. His throne would be forever, remember? So let's go to the first prophecy of David uh, to David about the son of David. You go to Second uh, Samuel chapter seven. Samuel is before Kings and before Chronicles. Second Samuel seven. David wants to build a temple. Really, it's not going to be him. He shed too much blood. He's a man of God. But yet it's not for Him. And here comes the covenant. The covenant is built upon all through the Old Testament. God shows Himself a little bit more. A little bit more. So here is a major chapter dealing with covenant. Are you ready? In verse 12. When your days are complete. Now this is... Uh, a, a covenant that's made with David. When your days are complete, when you die and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. And you're thinking, well, that's Solomon's son who's next in line as king. What's well, true? It goes much deeper than that because you'll see this is a forever throne here. He says in 13, He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. What is He? He's a descendant of David. That means in David's line, right? So coming in that line, not only the Abrahamic line, which is all of Jewish people, it's now coming down into... uh, and we know about the tribe, 12 tribes of Israel, and then there's Judah. And inside the tribe of Judah, and Judah, you think of the kings coming from that line. This descendant is going to come from not only Judah, but it's, it's David's line. Boy, this is very significant. Because in prophecy, when you have that, he can only come through that line. Nobody else. It has to be through David. Well, did you know that Joseph and Mary also came from that line? And that's why he is one who would be right for that throne if all the other things come into place. Well, now let's go to the New Testament. Let's see how that's picked up in Luke chapter 1, verse 32. Same book we've been dealing with lately. This is Gabriel going to Mary, the virgin. He says in one thirty-two, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father, David. Were there a lot of kings after David? Yes, there were. And they were from the line of David. But in 500 B.C., basically that ended the kingship. And he would say, this is supposed to be forever. Yeah, that throne, that line is coming from David though. 500 years, it'll show up. It'll be Jesus. The throne of His father David and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And His kingdom will have no end. So the angel Gabriel tells this to Mary. That's the one. That's the one. That's coming from David. The son of David. As he will be known. Verse 69, same chapter there. Luke 1, 69. This is Zacharias prophesying and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. The house of David. He's coming through that. Matthew 21 verse 9. Do you think the blind men knew those verses out of the Old Testament? I think he did. Matthew 21, 9. Here is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Guess what? The crowd's going ahead of him. That's probably a lot of the same people that we're down in Jericho with him, and probably the blind men. Crowds are going at him, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to who? The Son of David. I wonder where they got that from. What's well, out of the Old Testament? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Now in verse 9, if you were to go to Psalm 118.26, you'll see that they took that right out of the psalm. But I have to wonder if a lot of them heard about this blind, the blind men who are now seeing who have been saying the Son of David or the Messiah. And so they're saying here as they come into Jerusalem, Hosanna, the Son of David, here He is, this is the Messiah. Did you know a few days later these will be the same ones that will be saying what? Crucify Him! What do you want, folks? He's been here. He's proved it. And now the crowd is even saying Son of David. Did the blind people have anything to say with it? I don't know. But they sure quoted Scripture there out of Psalm 118. It's interesting though. In verse ten, when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, "Who is this?" All the crowds that were coming in with him, and he's on the donkey and everything, and you know, who's who's this? And and you know what the crowds were saying? This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Got it wrong. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's true. He's from there, but so David, Matthew twenty-two, verse forty-one. I'm really stuck on this because I love it. I love to see where prophecy is proving that Jesus really is who he said he is. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? What's automatic. The Messiah is, is the son of David. Everybody knew that. Pharisees knew that. They knew it more than anybody. And so what did they answer? The son of David. Okay, who is the Messiah? What's the son of David? Obviously. And he said to them, now, puts a little trick in here. Well, then, how does David in the spirit call him Lord? saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? He is. He's in that descendant line. How did they answer? No one was able to answer him a word. Nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. That's during Passion Week. He stumped him again. He's saying that he is Lord of David. Even though he's the son of David in that line, he's actually his Lord. And David even says that in Psalm 110. And so much that it is quoted here. Oh, don't you like it? Luke chapter 2, verse 4. Get a little bit of Christmas in here. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. City of David, Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. That means Joseph, who played the father role. He really wasn't, you know, as far as... um, you say biologically that's not his father, but he is his father in another sense, and he, this Joseph came from the family of David. John seven verse 40, 40 through forty three, John seven. Then we'll move on. Some of the people, therefore, when they had heard these words, were saying, "This certainly is the prophet." Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ, Messiah, is not going to come from Galilee, is He? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David? And from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And of course, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. It means Bet, which is house bread. House of bread. He said, I am the bread. When we have communion, what's one of the symbols that we use? The bread. From the house of David. Bethlehem, the village of David. Right there. It's it's right at Jerusalem, really. City of David. Okay, let's move on. Back to Luke. Now, do you think that the blind men knew who Jesus was without even seeing Him? I think so. I think their eyes are opened. Physically, it's going to happen. So, we see that Jesus makes a request... Or, I'm sorry, Jesus is going to make a command and, and a request here in a moment, but he has a request here. The blind men does, or the blind men, and they called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And of course, uh, the word cry out or called out, it's it means to literally call out aloud. Matthew really amplifies it and uses the word kradzo, which means to st- Oh, I'd love to do it (laughs) here. To scream. (laughs) You thought I was gonna do it, didn't you? (laughs) It it Matthew used it and it's used biblically in other places for where you have the ones who are insane, epileptics, demon possessed people, and pregnant women who are getting ready to give birth. Do you know that scream? (laughs) We're talking about really yelling very strongly. They're crying out here. They're in anguish. They're in desperation. I think this is clearly faith. Because if He goes by and they don't get to see Him or to talk to Him, not another chance. Mercy! Mercy! Did the tax collector use that? Have mercy on me. What about the publican? No. God, I'm thankful that I'm not like this man over here, like others, right? Rich young ruler? I've done everything. What is it? What else can I do? Give everything up. Follow me. Hmm. I can I, I can't do that. These men are going to follow Him. Mercy takes the mercy of God to lift people out of a horrible, dark place because they have nothing in themselves to respond. Do you remember that? Faith overcomes hindrances. What are they telling the blind man? Verse 39, Those who led the way were sternly, wonder what that means, Telling him to be quiet But he kept crying out all the more how much louder can he get son of David have mercy on me and both of them are Chiming in doing this really As we see nothing is going to stop the beggar here No matter what they try to sign him, and he gets louder He needs mercy there's nothing that's going to come in the way because he recognizes he knows he needs mercy blindness definitely graphically shows that. Jesus is passing by and He takes His opportunity. Jesus then asked a question verse 40, and Jesus stopped and commanded that He be brought to Him and when He came near He questioned Him. So Jesus asked a question. It starts with a command bring Him here. So He has some authority there. I mean, yeah, the crowd is following He's Just bring Him up this way. He stopped He ordered that He be brought to Him and we see an amazing thing. Jesus who has all this crowd and He is set like Flint to go to Jerusalem and He takes the time for these two poor blind beggars on the road there. It's really all about Jesus here though really. He has great power. He has great glory. He has the mercy. He has the grace. He has the love. Do you know His compassion that He has? What if God was a powerful God, but He had no compassion? Could He be that way? God is God. But no, an attribute of God is that He is compassionate. Jesus takes the time, and they're saying, shh, shh, calm down. You're going to bother Him. You know, He's got to get going. We've got to get to Jerusalem, you know. Stop it. Shut up. Mark 10:49. I think it's really interesting here what Mark says here to kind of add to a little color to this. Mark 10, verse 9. 49, I'm sorry. Yeah, 9 wasn't working out very good for me. Thank you, Bob. Then they, page. Uh, uh, Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. So they called, and the blind man sang to him, They were saying to the blind man, What? take courage might be some of the same people that were going shh, shh but Jesus says no bring him here and they say hey hey Jesus wants to see you take courage stand up come on from <laughs> the same some of the same guys have been saying shut up shh, Jesus is busy blind men aren't going to be stopped are they Jesus asked a question. Is it Jesus knows everything. What did He ask a question for? What, is it, what, what kind of a question is this? He's, all He has to do is look at the blind man. He knows he's blind. And what does Jesus say? What do you want Me to do for you? What do you want Me to do for you? Jesus, at this time is setting this up he never asks a dumb question does he but he is designing it to get bartimaeus to be specific in stating his need so that all the crowd around him would know in case they didn't know he is blind and what he's saying he wants Jesus wants him to say it we want to see of course they do Jesus is going to grant the answer to this uh, plea. James and John had a plea. They asked Jesus to do whatever they requested and that they could sit on the right and left hand of Him with power and authority. And He says, it's not for me to give That is not what it's about. It wasn't for his glory that he would grant it to them, but it's his glory that he would grant salvation by grace and mercy to two blind beggars who cried out, Lord, right? Son of David, have mercy on us. Give us sight. What do you want? What do you want me to do? Lord, I want to regain my sight. Receive your, receive your sight. He says, your faith has made you well. So Jesus answers the prayer just like that. Just a second ago, they couldn't see. A second later, they see clearly. Just like that when you came to Christ asking forgiveness of your sins and have mercy, what did He do? Instantaneously. He became a new person. A new being. Receive your sight. It's funny how He did it. Sometimes He says it with a word. Sometimes He touches them. Sometimes it's with spittle. Sometimes it's with clay. Sometimes it's like, okay... Uh, you go down to the pool of Siloam and wash there, and you'll be able to see, or sometimes it's like tall trees, you know men were like tall trees, or whatever, and then the sight became really clear. I will tell you it's people got healed back at that time who really had no faith, and everybody that got healed doesn't necessarily mean that they became believers. but I will tell you. Healings of people who had faith were believers. People who had no faith didn't necessarily become believers. That were healed. His healings, though, I will tell you, were total. They were instantaneously. They were verifiable. Everybody knew. It was inexplicable. You don't even understand how that can happen. Supernatural. You know what? A lot of these healings that you see on TV can be faked by people, and you don't even know who they are. You know, are they uh, they're on you know on the stage or they out in the crowd and they're being planted? We come to find out most often that would be the case, and they're playing along the game, or people are helping this go along, and then other people they just turn down. You know, the show is over, and boom, they shut the doors, and they're out of there. And then people are still in wheelchairs and such, still blind. Do you know what? I think you've got people faking. You can fake lower back pain. You can fake a lot of diseases, you know, or that kind of thing. But try faking a blind person. I've never heard uh, really of that happening. I mean, I think I've heard of it, you know. but when they track it down, it comes to be that that really was not true. Now, can God do that? I'm not saying that God can't do it in, in our time. But it's not the norm. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a miracle. It would be the norm all the time. We'd be living in the Kingdom Age. Everybody would be all be healed. But I will tell you this, faith is necessary for salvation. It wasn't necessary to be healed. Sometimes you know you know you'd see people that didn't necessarily have faith some did but it takes faith for salvation it is a requirement your faith has made you well you know what the verb is there well ordinarily would be uh, eomai in this case it's not that word it's what would be equivalent to sozo sz in our english letters which means Saved, delivered, saved, yeah, spiritually. It's faith by... He received the blessing of God. He was crying out for mercy. He recognized that there's only God that could do that. It's when you, you believe, you trust. It's a channel, isn't it? It's a channel, it's a conduit from God to us so He can bless us. That's how it gets there. We have to have the faith there from Him to us. It's, faith is a hand that receives God's gift of eternal life. Well, here we go. Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Verse 43, immediately. Regain his sight. Both of them. Imagine they're looking at each other. So that's what you look like. Oh, Wow. <laughs> Uh, it had to be the prettiest sight ever just to be able to see people, to see Jesus Christ. Boy, and I think he saw Him fully in, in, in this humanist there. He received Him. What else did He do? He followed Him. What else would you want to do? He followed Him. I want to stick around this guy forever, right? Glorifying God. That's what you do. You follow Him. There's obedience implied in that. There's glorifying, which is worship. Isn't that what God wants out of us? Our obedience and our worship. That's really what He wants. That's what He desires. And that's what happened here. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. Not that everybody was believers. But they knew. Everybody there, I would say, knew full well that there had been a supernatural miracle that happened. And they glorified God because of it. They gave praise to God. Picture of the unlikely people. Two blind men get up and start walking off right there with Jesus and the rest of the crowd. And they're getting ready to go up and ascend to Jerusalem. Wow. Christ was the Master worth following, wasn't He? I was blind. Now I see. Sounds like amazing grace, doesn't it? I was blind, but now I see. It gives glory to God, follows Christ. It wasn't just a one shot thing there, it followed him. And that led others to give praise to God. I wonder if there were others saved at that time because of what they saw in these men. Let's just sew this all up. Less than a minute. Christ is compassionate. Doesn't have to be. Christ hears our cry. Christ just doesn't heal us and leave us there, but he forgives us. You know what believers do? They forsake all and follow Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious, true story. You have given a little bit of light of what was happening just days before the crucifixion of Christ. We see how impactful it was. And these two men on the whole crowd around Him, and right on into Jerusalem, 2,000 years later, we are being impacted by the person of Jesus Christ who is our everything, our all in all. We'd be willing to give it all up for Jesus. So in your Son's name, Amen.